Welcome to Blaine Christ the King. You are listening to our weekly service message podcast. Join us every Sunday morning at 10 o'clock at our campus location in Blaine, Washington. Thanks for tuning in. This week we're in the third, uh, the, the third part of our series, Love as God Explains It. Um, over the last few weeks, we've been walking through the book of first, or walking through the chapter of First Corinthians 13, which is this famous love chapter in the Bible. And we've been talking about what does it actually look like to love others, because in this chapter, God provides us a concrete picture of what it means to love. You know, we said earlier in our culture that love is a pretty squishy term. Like, we can make love kind of fit in any box we want to. And, um, you know, for example, Derek said last week that he loves nachos. Like, he loves nachos. What does that mean, that he loves nachos? Does that mean that he's willing to lay down his life for nachos? Does that mean that he's ready to commit to nachos through the good times and the bad? I don't know. It might for him. I don't know. But... Um, you know, we can see how fuzzy this word can be in our culture. And so in 1 Corinthians 13, God speaks to the Apostle Paul, and he writes these words to the church in Corinth. He provides this beautifully clear picture of what love is. And um, as we walk through the last couple weeks, the first thing we saw is that love is necessary. If we don't have love when we serve other people, if we don't have love uh, when we work, then it's all meaningless. It's like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, Paul says. It's just noise that's irritating. And then Derek shared last week about love being patient and kind, uh, that in love we're willing to wait for breakthroughs in the lives of other people, and that we're there to serve people. And we treat people in patience and kindness better than they deserve. And so as we come today to verses 5 and 6, uh, this is what it says. You can look on the screen. It says this. Love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And so today I want to focus on one of these statements mostly. I want to focus on the statement that love rejoices with the truth because I think it's the key uh, to this verse right here, these verses, is that love rejoices with the truth. But before we get there, I want to uh, walk through the, uh, the, the statements before it. Um, let's just quickly walk through that. Paul says first that love doesn't insist that we get our own way. Um, it me- basically what that means is that we don't insist that we get our way all the time, that we come to people in an open posture. Uh, love doesn't mean that uh, doesn't mean that we push people around to get our way or get what we want. Paul says that love isn't irritable. What that means is that love isn't touchy or quick to react to a situation. That love uh, s- runs cool when others might run hot. And then Paul says that love is not resentful, or in other translations it says it doesn't keep a record of wrongs. That love doesn't tally up someone's debts and hold them against them. It's actually a really beautiful picture about how God treats our sin in forgiveness, that he doesn't hold up our sins against us. And so it all builds up to this one positive statement in the section. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love doesn't celebrate evil. It rejoices with the truth. There's this word with, and there's a connection made between love and truth. 
Um, why does love rejoice with the truth? So while I was sick, um, Bonnie and I w watched a movie called Florence Foster Jenkins. Has anyone seen this movie? A few people. All right. It, my wife chose it, by the way. Okay. It's a Meryl Streep movie. I'm not like I'm not gonna pick a Meryl Streep movie right off the bat. But um, the movie is the story about a rich woman who lives in New York City in the 1940s. And the basic premise of the movie, I'm going to ruin it for you, I'm sorry, but um, the basic premise of the movie is that Florence thinks she's this great opera singer, when in reality she is terrible. Like her voice is screechy and flat. Um, it reminds me of if, you know, when I've tried to sing falsetto to Don't Stop Believing, you know, it's just like, Don't Stop! You know, it's bad. <laughs> it is bad. And I might do that if we ever have a karaoke Sunday here, I might try it out. Um, but the problem is, is that everybody in Florence's life empowers her to believe the lie that she's actually a great singer. And so because she's rich and she pays well, her piano player, her husband, um, they keep this facade going. They pay off audiences. They pay off newspapers. They pay everyone to just keep this lie going that she's actually a great singer. And she makes a record together that people actually request to, to this day because it's so laughable. This is a true story. You can YouTube it. Um, the charade goes on and on throughout the movie, and she ends up thinking that she's so great that she goes ahead and books Carnegie Hall, invites a thousand people to this movie theater, and it's like the biggest sham of her life. She's mocked and humiliated. It's pretty brutal. But... What I see in it is that love cannot be love if it's separated from the truth. Love cannot be love if it's separated from the truth. It would have been more loving if her husband had just said, Honey, you are an awful singer. Like, you are terrible. Like, we need to find a new hobby, right? That would have been loving. Um, but instead, he, he goes ahead and, and uh, makes her believe this illusion that she's actually good at this. You know, Florence was probably good at something. She was probably born good with something. She could have done something else. But instead, she lives this lie, and it ends in disaster. And often, oftentimes, that's how we try to love people. Uh, we attempt to make people feel good about themselves, even if they're headed in the wrong direction. And I found this very challenging when I watched this movie. Even when people are making poor choices, sometimes it's easier to just let them make poor choices than to speak the truth. You know, we might do it out of fear of losing something, our friendship, or it just creating an awkward situation, but we do this. Um, Pastor Rick McKinley said one time, he said that when we, when we love people but we're afraid to tell them the truth, it's like giving people back rubs on the Titanic. Like, the ship is going down. And instead of, like, telling people, like, Hey, we need to, like, you need to prepare. Like, we need to get in the boat. Like, they're like, all right, it's okay. Let's just relax. Let's just keep going, do what we need to do. I'll never forget that image. It just, it sticks with you. Um, but Derek mentioned last week that Jesus never compromises his love or his truth. Jesus never compromised his love or his truth. Jesus was both fully loving and fully truthful. There wasn't any separation between the two for Jesus. He saw that sharing the truth was loving and that in love we share the truth. It went together. And so when Paul writes this phrase, love rejoices with the truth, first off, he's not talking about small truth. He's not talking about small things. 
he's, he is, in a roundabout way, he's not just talking about correcting people's behavior or being everyone's critic, like, man, your breath is so terrible. And I think God just wants me to sh- share that with you, because you need to course correct here, man, and like use a mint. He's not saying that. What he's saying is talking about the big picture truth. Big picture truth. It's found in the person of Jesus. He's sharing the gospel. Love rejoices with the truth, and the truth is in the gospel. It's found in the person of Jesus. And so my first point this morning is this, is that love and truth come together in the person of Jesus. God didn't just offer facts about what truth is. He offered us a relationship with himself through Jesus. He offers us both love and truth in Jesus. In John 14, Jesus is explaining to his disciples that soon he'll be leaving them. Soon he'll be going away, but he's going to prepare a place for them. And there's one of his disciples who's famous for questioning, famous for doubting, Thomas, and he asks them this. He says, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you would have known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. It's a concrete way to life. Jesus shows us who God is, that when, Thomas, if you've seen me, you know God the Father. Like, I am the expression of truth, the truth about God. And so Jesus is God made accessible to us. He's God made personal to us. He's God that came down and lived among us. He took on our skin and our bones and he suffered and died. And so he shows us what love is. And so for both the religious and non-religious, we encounter the truth and we encounter love when we first encounter Jesus. Because in Jesus, God's truth goes together with God's love. What a Jesus encounter t- shows us how to love. In 1 John 4.10, it says, This is real love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent, us, uh, sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. So to know God is to know love. To know Jesus is to know love. Uh, when we follow Jesus, we, the love that we have for um, others comes from experience. It comes from experiencing a real, tangible love in Jesus. On the flip side, you can't speak the truth to someone without love. Love and truth still need to go together. You can't isolate the truth from love. You can't separate it out. Because if you do that, you miss the heart of the gospel. Like hammering people with the truth does not open any doors to love. It just becomes what we talked about earlier in 1 Corinthians, that that uh, l- it just becomes a noise, an irritating noise, a clanging symbol. We just become, uh, we troll people instead of loving people. And we can end up hurting people if we say things without love. Bob Hyatt said this, he said, Love opens doors to people's hearts. God offers his truth to people in love. His kindness leads others to turn to repentance. And it's in that way that love rejoices with the truth. So in Jesus, we all encounter love and truth. And I wonder, as Paul's writing this, if he's thinking back to his first encounter with love and truth, with his first encounter with the love and truth of God. 
Because in Scripture, what we see is that Paul's first encounter with the truth happens when he meets a man named Stephen in Acts. See, Stephen was someone who radiated both the love and truth of Jesus in the way that he lived. He, he uh, lived fearlessly. He was part of the early church right after it uh, was born in Jerusalem, and he uh, first started by serving the widows and orphans of the community. And this is how Scripture describes Stephen. In Acts 6, he says he's a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Stephen is full of grace and power. When he's challenged by the religious elders, it says they couldn't withstand the wisdom and the spirit by which he was speaking. When Stephen challenges the Jewish courts, he says what he knows to be true about Jesus, and it says that his face was like the face of an angel. And so Paul's first experience with love and truth together is in this person of Stephen. He has grace and power, that he has wisdom and he moves by the Spirit, that he speaks in such a way that conveys love. You know, in Stephen, in this situation, he's speaking the truth about God to these religious leaders. He's basically turning everything that they know and everything they've come to understand to be true about their history and about God in their history on its head. And he calls them out and he says this, he says, and this is so loving, he says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in your hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. How is that love, right? It is love. It's a warning. It's like, it's like the Titanic. Get in the lifeboat, right? It's time to go. He calls them out for their, uh, their lack of faith, their lack of belief. And uh, he's just this humble guy. He doesn't have the religious background of these guys. He doesn't have the education. He, he doesn't have any of that. And here he is in the way that he's communicating, in the love and truth of God. He, he shames these religious men whose hearts are full of pride. And so in response, they take him outside and they stone him. And this is what it says in Acts 7. It says, then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. Now before Paul was Paul, his name was Saul. And this is the first reference we see to the person of Paul in the Bible where he's there approving this execution. And the word approval, it doesn't just mean approval. It means that he was giving his hearty consent, that he was worked up with these religious leaders of everything that was going on, everything that Stephen was doing. You know, there was probably no way that he could deny that God was with this man. But his response, Paul's response, is that he, he had to do something, and so his response was to destroy what he had just seen. To remove what he had just seen. And so actually this encounter with God, it moves um, Paul from a place of indifference with Jesus to a place of hate. Where he's like, I'm going to destroy what I've just seen. Why? Because Stephen takes everything that Paul knows to be true and flips it on its head. He challenges everything that Paul has ever been taught. Paul was raised to be this Pharisee, this religious leader. And he challenges it to the core of who Paul is, this young man is. 
And so he, Paul, I- in order to for Paul to respond, he would have to be humbled by letting go of everything that he's ever known. And so in an act of preservation, Paul seeks to destroy what he has just seen. And for us, it's, it's our pride that keeps us from a real God experience. It's our pride. It's the, it's the fear of walking into the unknown. It's the fear of risking everything we've ever known to follow someone who might call us into something that we, we are afraid to, to, where we are afraid to go. Um, because when we encounter Jesus, he's guaranteed to mess up our lives in some way. He's still messing up my life. <laughs> he's still messing up my life. He's still, his will will, will change, your will will change as, as you grow closer and closer to Christ. But when we encounter Jesus, we're forced out of our indifference. We can't stay indifferent when we're challenged with the truth of Jesus. We have to make a response. Our lives have to change. And I think we all have sticking points when it comes to following Jesus. Like, I'll go here, but I don't know if I can do this. I'll follow you here, Jesus, but I don't think I can follow you here. And a life following Jesus is slowly letting go control of more and more things in your life. Slowly letting go control and putting your life, living in such a way that you're under the will of God. And that sticking point could be anything. It could be a habit that you can't quit. It could be a hurt that you can't release. Um, For many, it's singleness. Like, being single is difficult. And, you know, maybe you've asked God for years for a spouse and it just hasn't happened. and, And that's something that you could hold on to. Basically, our sticking points are anything that distracts us from really following Jesus or embracing this love and truth of Jesus for our own lives. And for Paul, he was unwilling to surrender his religion, everything that he had grown up with, all the systems that said, hey, Paul, you're a pretty good person in this religious system. Hey, you're, you're a hotshot. You're an up-and-comer in the system. He didn't want to let that go. And so this is what he did in Acts 8. It says, And there arose on that day a great persecution around the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. You know, that word ravaging means that Paul was just wreaking havoc anywhere he could on the church, that he was just full of rage and, like, doing everything he could to snuff this out. And so what's interesting is that the truth of Jesus stirred Paul into passion. It was just passion in the wrong direction. It was just passion to get away from the truth instead of embracing the truth. But that's what the truth does. When, we're, when we encounter it, we're challenged to our core. And we have two choices when we encounter the truth. Uh, We can resist it or we can embrace it. And I would say that at any given point, we're actively doing one or two of these things. We're actively either resisting the truth or we're actively embracing the truth. We're either running from God or to God. There isn't a point in our life with Christ or our lives where we plateau, where we're like, okay, I know the truth about God and I'm just like going to hang out here. No, we're either, it, we're either running to God, and that might be slow steps, might be fast steps, or we might be running from God in slow steps or in fast steps. And ultimately, the sin that keeps people from God is our own self-righteousness. We think that we're justified in our own way. 
And that's, that's the major problem that's been the problem forever. And with Adam and Eve in the garden, um, they decided not to trust God because they were fooled into thinking, hey, it'd be better if we were equals with God. It'd be better if we were like God. They wanted God to be their advisor. They didn't want God to be their Lord. Does that make sense? When we resist God, we resist Jesus because we don't think we need him. We, we think that we've got it figured out. We like the way that things are now. And even many religious people, they don't really want to be dependent on God. They want to just live a little bit better than everyone else. And that's not the truth. That's not the truth. Because um, Jesus is the only way to God. And so to embrace life, to embrace this truth, is to is see your need for Jesus and to embrace it. It's interesting that the people who put up the most resistance to Jesus were the Pharisees. You know, the religious rule keepers and referees. Because um, their hearts were puffed up with their own pride. Um, they thought they were good enough, and they didn't realize how far their hearts were from God. That they were more concerned about how they looked than about the love of God that would reach out to other people. The truth is that everyone needs Jesus. Everyone needs Jesus, regardless of where you're at or what your experience is. And so instead of resisting Jesus, we need to embrace Jesus. We need to embrace the truth and love that we see in Jesus. See, the picture that Paul saw in Stephen, at first it led him to hate, but eventually it broke him. Eventually he surrendered. It eventually led him from hate into love. Daryl Bach says this. He says, Stephen never knew that the event that he participated in that led to his death also led to being the first seed that was planted in the life of a figure named Saul who became Paul. Stephen, in his dying breath, planted a seed in Paul. Paul, the great missionary of the church. Paul, the one who wrote half of the New Testament. In Stephen's love and truth and his forgiveness of the people who were killing him, like he planted a seed in the heart of Saul. And it's a seed that I'm sure Paul wrestled against. It's a truth that Paul fought against in his heart, but eventually it wore him out. And then one day as Paul's on the road to Damascus and he's continuing his anger and rampage, Jesus confronts him. It says this, he says, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise, enter the city, and you will be told what to do. See, what's amazing is that he doesn't say, who are you? Who's talking? He says, who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? He honestly wants to know. He honestly wants God to reveal himself in that moment. And I don't know if you've had a moment like this. I grew up going to church. I grew up in Sunday school, youth group, did all the things. It wasn't until I was 20 um, where I was confronted with this, do I really know who Jesus is? Do I really, really know at a heart level who Jesus is? And there was a moment of desperation that I had where I really didn't know. I really didn't know if Jesus was truly God, if he could truly be trusted, if he was really Lord. And so in that moment, I said, Jesus, show yourself to me. 
And it's the first time where I read the Bible asking God the question, God, who are you? With that open heart, God, just show me who you are. And in that moment, I experienced a profound sense of peace in, in my life. And I don't know if you've had a moment like that where you've just been so desperate to know where you've cried out, who are you, Lord? There's a lot of things that can drive us to that moment. There's a lot of things that can drive us into that moment, but it's the most important question that you'll ever ask. When you can just honestly get on your knees and say, Lord, who are you? You may have been a Christian for years, but have never asked this question. Because it's when we cry out to God, when we encounter God, that he sets us free. It's in that moment where we find our freedom. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians that the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There is freedom. When we allow the love of God and the truth of God to live in our hearts, that's what sets us free. That's when we experience freedom. That's when we can experience freedom from fear and anxiety, from sin, from death. Everything that comes with being human, we can experience freedom in the love and truth of Jesus. The, the Bible doesn't give us another way. The Bible doesn't give us another way. Jesus said to his disciples, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. It all, so it all boils down to this this morning. That love embraces the truth because there we find freedom. Love embraces the truth because there we find freedom. When love and truth go together, that's freedom. It's not in believing a lie like Florence Foster Jenkins and just, oh, I'm just going to keep on singing and, and do my thing. That, she's not free. <laughs> she's living a lie. Um, it's not living the truth without love because there is no freedom without love. There is no freedom of spirit without love. The security that we have comes from knowing that God loves us deeply, being convinced that God loves us deeply. It's when people experience the truth of God with the love of God that they find freedom. God offers us a concrete path to freedom. You know, it's not a squishy path that our culture has. It's not in a religious pluralism type path where all roads lead to God. No, the truth is important because God has offered us a concrete path to God. He's offered us a concrete path to freedom. He says, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And when we believe that, it sets us free. So my question for you this morning is, are you ready to experience that on a deeper level? Are you ready to have that encounter with Jesus that would set your heart free? You know, it may be asking God, who are you in my stress? Who are you in my anxiety? Who are you when I spend nine hours a day in a job that's driving me crazy? <laughs> who are you as I'm trying to parent my kids and having all these challenges? Who are you when I have all these, uh, th these issues with a neighbor or whatever it might be? Who are you, Lord? Because it's not a question we just ask once. It's a question that we ask over and over again, that God would reveal himself in our lives and in our situation. Who are you, Lord? Let's find out. Uh, 
Like he rings. Man, that's great. Uh, thanks, Lloyd. Ride it like the crux, you know. Yeah, come on up, worship team. That's awesome. Wow. Um, <laughs> uh, I want to encourage you to ask God that question. All right. I want you to encourage you to ask God the question. If you haven't asked God that question, you can ask Him this morning. Um, I'm going to be over here with our our uh, care team this morning. We would love to pray for you. Even if you're just having a hard day and you need someone to pray for you, we would love to do that this morning. Um, yeah, be brave. Be brave. It's good to pray for each other. It's good to um, love each other. Because love rejoices with the truth. So let's own this, guys. Let's own love and truth together. Let's not neglect love for the truth and not s- let's not neglect the truth for love. But in boldness, share what God has told us. In boldness, share and tell people where the lifeboats are on the ship. We need to be praying for people to, to hear the truth, to know the truth. Um, because holding back is not love. Holding back the path to freedom, the path to God, is not love. We need to share the good news. We need to share Jesus. Let's pray. God, we are... Uh, Lord, we are deeply, deeply indebted to your love, God, and your truth. We, God, are thankful that you made a way for us to know who you are, that you did not keep distance between us, but that in Jesus you sent your own son to die for us, to to be with us, God, that we might know what truth is. And so, Lord, like Stephen, I pray that we would be so convicted of this truth, God, that we'd even be willing to lay down our own lives, that we'd be willing to surrender everything in order to live for the truth. God, that we would uh, be so full of love that people wouldn't mistake it uh, for empty noise, God, but that they would see the love of God in our eyes, Father. This is deeply challenging, God. Lord, we live in a world that is crumbling, God. We live in a world where people are far from you, God. And I pray, Father, that the truth would be known, God, because it's in the truth that, that we have freedom. God, it's not in just going our own way. Lord, it's not in just trying to find our own path, God, that sets us free. It's when we actually know the reality of life and we actually know the reality of God, that's when we can live in the light. That's when we can live in freedom. And God, whatever is holding us back from that today, whatever hurt, whatever uh, pain that, that would hold us from hold us back from believing that, I pray that you would help us to let go of that this morning. I pray that you would help us to release that and trust you. Jesus, I pray that you would make your presence known in our lives in a way that is unmistakable. God, just like you made your presence known in Stephen and in Paul in ways that were unmistakable, I pray that you would do that right now here in Blaine, in our hearts, God. God, it says that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You don't change, God. Your love doesn't change, God. What is true about you doesn't change, Father. And so, Jesus, we just uh, we cry out to you this morning, God, asking, Lord, that you would show yourself to us, Lord. And as we love others, God, as we uh, try to live in the love of God, that it would be saturated in the truth of God. Lord, that we would immerse ourselves in your truth, 
that we would follow you, we'd read your word, we would study together, God, that we would be so convicted, God, that we just want to go out and reach out to our neighbors. Lord, would you help us to reach out, God? If we're afraid of that, if we're afraid of what could happen, I pray that you would help us to take a step this week in sharing the truth, God. Because it's the truth that sets people free. It's knowing the truth that will really allow them to have life in God. It's the truth that is the pathway to God. It saves us from hell so that we can live in the light of the grace of God, that we can live fully, forever, eternally with you. So, Lord, I pray for that this morning, God, that you would just convict our hearts, God, that you would go before us, that you would stir in us. And if there's people here, God, that are ready to make that decision for the first time, I pray that you give them boldness, God, to, to, to pray uh, over there with our prayer team this morning, um, God, to, uh, to make a step, Lord, to, to check the box, whatever that they need to do to let someone know, God, that they're ready to follow, Father. Lord, and if we've been, if our faith has been dormant, God, Lord, may uh, your truth spark us again, God. May an encounter with Jesus spark us again. Lord, I pray this honestly, Father. Lord, show yourself to us in Jesus' name. Amen.